the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 10. Reducing Russia's Nuclear Threat in the Baltic Region. Talking with Dr. Marion Mesmer of Chatham House. Our guest today is Marion Mesmer, a senior research fellow in the International Security Program at Chatham House, the London-based foreign policy think tank. She joins us from her office in London. Hello, Marion, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Marion, please take a moment to tell us about your biography and Chatham House. Yeah, sure. So I am a senior research fellow in the International Security Program at Chatham House. Chatham House is an independent uh, foreign policy and security policy think tank based in London. We've been around since 1920, so we recently celebrated our uh, 100th birthday. And we essentially provide advice and recommendations on foreign and security policy issues to primarily European governments, but really governments all around the globe. We cover any current issues. So my program specifically focuses on security policy. I work on a team that looks specifically at uh, weapons of mass destruction issues. So that's nuclear, chemical and biological weapons issues, as well as the impact of various emerging technologies on security. So we're really interested in the current surgeons of AI. We also have colleagues looking at cybersecurity and the governance of cyberspace as well as uh, conflict prevention, conflict management, conflict de-escalation. And then we have other colleagues across the house who are regional experts or have other areas of uh, technical expertise. And one of the things that I really love as a foreign and security policy nerd about working at Chatham House is how diverse our colleagues are. I myself grew up in Germany, then did my university education in the US, in France, and finally in the UK, which is how I ended up at Chatham House. And so it's really a pleasure to work with colleagues who come from all around the globe, who have lived very internationally and bring that to their work. And yeah, to say a little more about myself, um, before I joined Chatham House, I was co-director of BASIC, which is a nuclear policy think tank also based in London. Before that, I did my PhD research on, on a topic that is very relevant to today's podcast, in fact, which is the relationship between NATO and Russia and why it deteriorated so much after the end of the Cold War, rather than improving, which is what I think a lot of analysts had hoped for. Mm-hmm. So really looking forward to our conversation today and delving a little deeper into some of those issues. Fascinating. Marian, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022, Vladimir Putin from the outset has introduced nuclear weapons into the equation. Why has he opted to do that? Russia isn't at existential risk, so why has he put the nuclear option on the table? That's a really good question. I think in some ways, Russia may never have made the decision to invade Ukraine if they didn't have the protection of their nuclear weapons. I think in some ways, the Kremlin early on made the decision that they probably could get away with invading Ukraine because other states wouldn't necessarily want to intervene out of fear 
to escalate the conflict to a nuclear direction. And I think in some ways that calculus has worked out for them. The, the other nuclear threat that we have seen pretty much from the start of Russia's invasion has been the risk to Ukraine's nuclear power plants, um, especially the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, which has been a frontline conflict zone for a long time. So there are lots of international law protections for nuclear power plants because they are a critical infrastructure component and they also potentially can be quite risky. And of course, you know, when when we hear Ukraine, many of us think of the nuclear accident at uh, Chernobyl, Mm -hmm. which ended up having a huge impact on the rest of Europe. So for that reason, I think a lot of Europeans have been quite concerned about what might happen to the power plant in Saporizhia. So the nuclear risks have really come from two directions. On the one hand, from Russian nuclear weapons and from Putin's and Medvedev's and other Russian officials' threats of using those nuclear weapons, potentially, if uh, NATO were to cross certain red lines in their support of Ukraine, or if uh, perhaps the war were to go in a direction that Russia didn't want it to go. And then the other aspect of the threat has been whether the nuclear power plants, and in particular the nuclear power plant at Saporizhia, might be caught up in the conflict in a way that it could be damaged and radiation could be mm-hmm. released in that sort of a way. So in that in that sense, we've never been too far from the nuclear specter in this war, even though Ukraine doesn't have any nuclear weapons. And so far, Russia has only made rhetoric use of their nuclear weapons. They've not actually done anything in order to use them in any way. So that's a very good clarification. I appreciate that, Marion. Let's move on to the Baltic region. Russia, of course, borders the Baltic Sea with the port of St. Petersburg, and also the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad, which formerly was Konigsberg. Tell us how Russia faces its Baltic neighbors and how the equation has changed against Russia's interest in the Baltic region as a result of its moves in the Ukraine. The Baltic region has actually changed pretty dramatically since 1990. But I think many of us have not been paying too much attention to it until Russia decided to invade Ukraine, because there wasn't much about the Baltic Sea region that seemed particularly threatening or concerning. So if we look at the Baltic Sea region in 1990, for example, we we had a very different geostrategic picture. So just For your listeners who might not be looking at a map right now, the Baltic Sea is surrounded by Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Russia, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Germany. And that's sort of roughly starting in the northwest and then going around the sea. If we look at 1990, only two out of those countries, Denmark and Germany, were already NATO member states. Poland at the time was still undergoing democratic transition and ended up joining NATO in 1999, so not until nearly a decade later. Lithuania had just about declared independence in 1990 and then became a NATO member in 2004, so nearly 15 years later. Latvia became independent in 1991, also joined NATO in 2004. Estonia became independent in 1993 and then joined NATO in 2004. So for most of the 1990s, Even though Russia controlled a lot less of the Baltic Sea and Baltic region territory than the Soviet Union did, the Baltic Sea region was actually a fairly loose group of states that were all grappling with their own challenges. 
whether they were economic challenges, whether they were democratic transition, or whatever other challenge was going on in the 90s. But then since 1999, more and more of these states have become NATO member states. So from a NATO perspective, that has been a great move. Um, It's been fantastic for NATO collective security. NATO membership in the late 90s and early 2000s also ended up being conflated with being a sort of Western democracy in a sense. So it became a status symbol for states to achieve, um, similar to European Union membership, for example. But from a Russian perspective, it became pretty concerning because in the Russian government, the view of NATO as a potential rival and as, as a potential adversary never really went away. So while from a Western European perspective or perhaps from a US perspective, no one was really thinking that Poland or Lithuania or any of the other Baltic states were joining NATO because they wanted to confront Russia. From the Russian perspective, that was very much on their mind. What we then saw happening when Ukraine and Georgia around 2008 also expressed an interest in becoming NATO member states, the Russian government began to be even more concerned that its border with Russia, uh, with NATO would grow and continue to grow. So I think in some ways, Putin was probably hoping that invading Ukraine would allow Russia to take a little more control over its neighborhood and over the situation. However, it seems to really have had the opposite effect because Mm -hmm. what we have seen specifically in the Baltic Sea region is that because of the Russian invasion, Finland and Sweden, who previously were neutral, also decided to apply for NATO membership because their security calculus all of a sudden changed quite dramatically. And they began to really worry that because they weren't NATO member states, they might also be vulnerable to a Russian invasion or to Russian aggression in some sort of a way. As a result of Finland joining NATO, and of course, uh, Sweden is also going to join, but Finland actually shares, what is it, an 800-mile-long land border with Russia? So all of a sudden... Russia's land border with with NATO increased by 800 miles as a result of Finland joining NATO. Again, the law of unintended consequences. Uh, he presses against Ukraine in the south and then panics his northern neighbors, Finland and Sweden, to seek the protection of the NATO umbrella. Another concern, and again, coming back to this nuclear risk, which is our main subject today, there's been some talk that that Russia would position some tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. Belarus, of course, shares a border with Poland, uh, as well as uh, Lithuania, and of course, there is that there is Kaliningrad, the the Russian exclave, which is wedged between Poland and Lithuania, and Salwaki Corridor, forty miles of border between Poland and Lithuania. And haven't the Russians tried to create some kind of a access through that corridor from Belarus into Kaliningrad? That's a Polish concern. That's something that the Polish government has been concerned about a long time. And and you you can truly see which NATO member states have recently been controlled by the Soviet Union in some way or another, because they are much more worried about the, the possibility of Russia invading again. So the Polish government has been preparing for a long time to be able to protect against any attempt on behalf of, of Russia to be able to access Kaliningrad through 
Polish territory in some sort of a way. I think what's interesting about this move to station tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus, potentially, is that I've been trying to track this quite carefully, but the timeline of when Belarus announced a few weeks ago at this point, or perhaps even a few months ago now, that they had received the first deliveries of Russian nuclear weapons, we haven't actually seen much of the improvements to Belarus infrastructure that we would have expected. Mm-hmm. Insofar as that Russia is incredibly careful, as you would expect from any nuclear armed state, with how they store their nuclear warheads. Yes. And so any silo that would store nuclear warheads in some sort of a way uh, would be very, very well guarded, very well armed, and also very well protected from potential accidents. So it would be quite thick concrete, very difficult to breach, essentially to ensure that no radiation could escape accidentally, also to make sure that the the warheads couldn't be stolen or couldn't be accessed by someone who, sh- who shouldn't access them. Mm-hmm. And so while we have seen the beginnings of such construction work in Belarus, when I was looking into this, because uh, the um, Belarusian government was all of a sudden announcing that they had received the first tactical nuclear weapons, it wasn't at all clear that the construction of those storage sites had actually been concluded. So my assessment here is that they wanted to announce something to be seen to make more progress than they might have had. So I think we can perhaps expect Russian tactical nuclear weapons to be stationed in Belarus eventually. But I'm not convinced that we have seen enough evidence that actually that transfer has happened already. And while I think we shouldn't underestimate that, because it is, I think it creates a potential Russian negotiation position for future arms control, for example, because it has been for a long time, you know, complaint of the Russian government that U.S., Tactical nuclear weapons are stationed in Europe on the territory of a few different NATO member states, for example. It doesn't strategically make a huge difference because Russia already has some nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad, for example. And a lot of the the ways how you could deliver a nuclear weapon are so swift anyway that the difference in a few hundred kilometers between Belarus and Russian territory is strategically not that significant. The only way in which it would potentially make a difference is for delivering or or using tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. So perhaps if Russia wanted to shore up that threat, then that's one way of doing it. And then I think in other ways, it is significant because it might be changing the arms control negotiation calculus if Russia also has forward deployed tactical nuclear weapons that they can put on the table for a potential arms control negotiation with the United States down the line. Let's come back to history. I was thinking last night about the Cuba Missile Crisis in 1962. Now, mm-hmm. that's, that's 61 years ago, a long, long time ago. But at that time, Nikita Khrushchev, who, of course, was the, the Soviet leader, he had Cuba essentially host a series of Russian missiles, nuclear-armed missiles, which were aimed against the United States. They had a range that could have reached most of the uh, the southeastern, southern portion of the United States, as well as Caribbean and Latin America. Once again, looking back at history, Russia did something similar 
to this, stationing those weapons in Cuba. There, of course, was the Cuba Missile Crisis, where President Kennedy demanded that Khrushchev remove those uh, those missiles and those nuclear warheads. He did so. Apparently, there, there was uh, some kind of a, a side agreement with regard to U.S. weapons in Turkey. But most importantly, Russia had, or the Soviet Union as it was at that time, Soviet Union at that point blinked. And they removed their nuclear weapons. Is Putin not a student of history? Is Surely Putin was aware that he's playing with fire as he looks to station nuclear weapons in outside of Russian territory, just given what happened in the, the Cuba Missile Crisis. Are there any parallels with that crisis in this case, Marion, or is that a completely different? Is that a completely different story? I think what's different about it is that during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviet Union and the U.S. were both concerned about having a, a missile gap with the other. So part of the reason why the Soviet Union was so keen to station warheads and missiles on Cuba is because at the time they didn't have the intercontinental capabilities to launch nuclear weapons, reach U.S. homeland quickly mm. in uh, in case there was a crisis. Whereas, um, as you mentioned, the U.S. had missiles in Turkey and the Soviet Union was also worried that the U.S. at the time already had the intercontinental missile capabilities, which the Soviet Union was still developing. So the big difference is that, of course, any nuclear weapon used would have a horrendous impact. The nuclear weapons that we are talking about are lower yield nuclear weapons that would be used for shorter ranges and that would be used, for example, in a battlefield context. So, you know, again, I wouldn't, I really would not recommend to anyone to use them because the impact would still be very extreme and uh, and would devastate large parts of the area where they are used for, for a long time period. And, and when we talk about lower yield nuclear weapons, Today, we still talk about nuclear weapons that have similar impacts to the bombs that were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, you know, hardly, hardly small, hardly contained. But at the same time, if we do compare them with the kind of intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles that are the, the backbone of the deterrence calculus between Russia and the United States, if you will, they are very different in how they would be used. So in that sense, I can imagine that perhaps Putin was thinking much more about putting a capability on the table that would allow Russia to engage the United States in arms control at some point in the future. So perhaps he was inspired by the Cuban Missile Crisis, but more in the in the sense that Khrushchev was trying to really sell it as a win, that the US agreed to withdraw its missiles from Turkey as a result of the Soviet Union also withdrawing its missiles from Cuba. So in that sense, perhaps he's hoping for a similar bargaining chip when it comes to U.S. nuclear weapons in Europe. Now, whether the U.S. would go for that, I can't say. At this point, all arms control seems so far removed just because there are so many political tensions generally. But I can imagine that that is something that might have been on his mind when he made that decision. In that sense... Perhaps he was actually inspired by the Cuban Missile Crisis. It, it perplexes me why he has introduced the nuclear option into the equation. On the one hand, it could be a bluff. 
perhaps he felt that European countries, in particular Poland, which is a frontline country, would be less likely to oppose the Ukraine military operation if there was a veiled threat by Russia to use nuclear weapons against them. But again, he seems to have miscalculated because Poland, the other Baltic countries, as well as the rest of NATO, have all rallied to the support of Ukraine and have almost dismissed the prospect of Putin using the nuclear weapons. It's almost as though his bluff has been called. Is the nuclear threat that he, or the the nuclear, the insinuation of using nuclear weapons, is that even a credible threat at this point, given the fact that NATO doesn't appear to have blinked in the face of Putin's threat to use, to consider using nuclear weapons? That's a really difficult question. I think nuclear threats always have to be taken seriously just because of the enormity of the potential consequences. And we also can't forget that President Biden and other NATO member states actually reacted really well whenever Putin or another member of his government made an overt nuclear threat by making counter statements and making really clear that they were paying attention and that there would be consequences for Russia if Russia was to use a nuclear weapon. So I think in some ways, the reason why we still see such strong resolve in Poland and across European NATO member states generally really is because they don't want to appear as if they are taken in by Putin's threats. Because I think in some ways that could be the one of the worst outcomes mm-hmm. because then Putin might think that he can actually get away with, for example, one of the uh, one of the nuclear use options that were discussed early on in the conflict as, as a possibility of something that Russia might be considering, which is exploding a nuclear weapon as, as a warning shot or as a sign of uh, Russian resolve over the Black Sea or, you know, in uh, an empty part of Ukraine or something like that in order to get the Ukrainian military to back down. I think what we have seen so far is that that probably wouldn't have the desired effect. The Ukrainian military seems incredibly resolved to see this through and the Ukrainian government is is very determined to defeat Russia and, and push back on any Russian occupation. So perhaps that has also influenced Putin's calculus in turn because the nuclear threats didn't seem to have the desired effect that he was hoping for. But I think fundamentally, at the end of the day, he was really hoping for a repetition of what he saw in 2008 when Russia was at war with Georgia mm-hmm. for, I think, nearly two weeks in August. And um, and then again, what happened when, when Russia invaded Crimea in 2014? And in both of those instances, which, you know, in hindsight, were clearly part of a wider pattern of behavior, while Western European states were concerned, there wasn't the kind of outrage and pushback that we have seen now during the invasion of Ukraine. So I think in some ways, Putin has unfortunately learned the wrong lessons from his earlier behavior. And he assumed that European states basically would let him get away with whatever he wanted to do in Ukraine, because they would be so worried about the potential of a further military escalation. Whereas, yeah, it seems it seems that what we've seen instead is that uh, everyone has said that, you know, now is enough and trying to show Russia that they can't get away with 
breaking international law and uh, violating the sovereignty of neighboring states. I agree. What would happen, however, if Russia were to use, even as a demonstration, if they were to use a nuclear weapon as a warning to Ukraine, to NATO? What are the options available to NATO in the event that Putin were to unleash a tactical nuclear weapon, either as a demonstration or even on the battlefield. What are the options that uh, that NATO would be able to to use in the face of that? I'm sure you've had to consider those questions at, at Chatham House as you've done your analysis. The which option would end up being used would really depend on the exact target of such a of such an explosion. I think essentially the the bigger the impact of the Russian attack the more severe the consequences. So what, I, what I've seen people discuss in that realm is a conventional response, but a very severe conventional response, perhaps targeting other aspects of, of the Russian nuclear arsenal or targeting other significant military targets. Or it could, if it's, if it's severe enough, the response could also be nuclear, which would, of course, be even more devastating because then we would inevitably end up in a nuclear war scenario where Russia would also fire back. And I think, you know, all of this would also go alongside an even greater isolation of Russia on the world stage, because what we have seen so far is that Russia still enjoys some support from China, uh, from India to an extent, while they have been, while these governments have been reluctant to outlaw Russia or join in with, with wider sanctions, um, they have always reacted rather differently when Russia has made nuclear threats. So I think neither the Indian nor the Chinese government, both of which are also nuclear-armed states, would want to see nuclear weapons used in such a way because they would really worry about what that means for their own nuclear-armed status and for any conflicts that they might find themselves in. And so for that reason, I think leaving aside any military consequences that would surely come, Russia would also just find itself even more isolated than it has already become as a result of its actions. Losing Chinese and Indian support would be pretty significant given the size of those countries and given that especially China has also tried to help the Russian economy avoid some of the consequences of European sanctions. Marion, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts for this very complex problem, and it's uh, it's great to know that that individuals like yourself are spending a lot of time and effort in mapping out potential responses to these nuclear threats. What are your closing thoughts for our listeners today? All of this always sounds so grim when we talk about it, but I wouldn't want anyone listening to this losing hope or thinking that there's nothing that can be done. I think one of the things we've seen, for example, with Oppenheimer coming out is that people are, again, much more interested in talking about nuclear issues and nuclear threats. And that makes me really hopeful because I think that's exactly the kind of energy that we need in order to push things into a better direction. There is so much that we could do in order to change the situation, in order to reduce risks and in order to make the world safer. We have so many things that have already worked really well in the 80s and 90s that could be adapted to today. 
And then there are also really new solutions, like, for example, the uh, Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear uh, Weapons, which is trying to outlaw nuclear weapons in the same way how biological and chemical weapons have been outlawed. So there's a lot of activity that's, that's going on that's trying to make the world a little safer. And there are lots of ways how people who aren't nuclear experts or people who aren't working in a policy environment can get engaged. So you know, if you're worried, or if, if this episode made you think, then um, definitely see how you can get involved in those issues, even if it's just by, you know, picking up another book on nuclear issues to get a little more informed or writing to your member of Congress or member of parliament um, or your elected representative, just so that they know that you care about this. Because I think one of the ways in which we've allowed this topic to fall off the agenda is by people prioritizing other issues over it. So I think it's it's actually great that there is much more public interest in it now. Well, Marion, how can our listeners follow you? So I'm on Twitter at MG Mesmer, and I'm also on LinkedIn. Those are my two main professional platforms. And if you follow me on one or both, you'll get short form or long form content and updates about any of our events and research outputs. And I'd, I'd love to hear from you there. So your Twitter handle or X handle is M-G Mesmer, M-E-S-S-M-E-R. That's right. Yeah. Very good. And what is the website for Chatham House? The website for Chatham House is chathamhouse.org. And you can find all of our publications on there, not just for myself, but also for our whole team. Very good. Again, your Twitter handle is at M-G Mesmer. And uh, once again, Marion, thank you so much for joining us today and shedding light on this concerning subject. But I think you've given, you've also given us some hope for for the future. So look forward to having you come back on another occasion. Thanks so much for having me. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 436. The San Francisco Experience podcast is carried on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and you can follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. We were recently recognized by Feedspot as a top 25 California news podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. 